David and everyone else on the platform, thank you so much for leading so well this morning that we might sing to the Lord and honor Him as we come now to hear from God's Word. As we begin uh, this service today and this time in God's Word, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, um, we'll be covering verse 1 to 5, but also I'll be going elsewhere. Um, I'm kind of calling this a, a topogetical sermon. It's an exegetical, but a bit topical as well. I'm going to examine the text of Galatians 6, 1 to 5, but I also want to talk about the topic of conflict resolution and true biblical reconciliation. And I mean, whole books have been written on this. I have a couple up here I'll recommend in a moment. Um, so this is a very extensive topic and so much could be said, um, but I'm going to try my best to summarize this text and how it relates to the topic of conflict resolution. But why this text today? Well, Lewis and I had a really great discussion a few months ago about a biblical approach to conflict resolution. And as you guys are very well aware of, we've had you know, the ACBC conference here. That's the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. We had their CDT almost a, a, 10 months ago now here at the church. And then many of you participated, and it was a great time to learn how we can rightly approach living a godly life for him, but in according to the word of God as our sufficient resource for living this life. And one of those topics that um, was talk, talked about was conflict resolution. And it, it can be a very sanctifying thing, conflict, uh, for the Christian. It's sanctifying because it reveals the true states of our heart. It's sanctifying because as scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. There have been many times where I've responded to conflict well and many more times probably where I've not responded as well. And the Lord uses it all. And in the gracious sovereignty of our Lord, we are greatly blessed um, to have a brother like Nathan, who last week uh, preached the Beatitudes. And he talked about one of the Beatitudes that I think really relates to this conversation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So I'm not even going to cover that part. Go listen to last week. He did a great job. But peacemakers, that's what we're called to be. And as we think about being a people of God who grow together, we must recognize that we will have growing pains. We won't always approach conflict well or perfectly. Of course not. We're not the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have his word and we have his spirit that we might do so to the best of our ability, leaving the results to him. So the main text that came to my mind as I began thinking about this, as I said, was Galatians 6, 1 to 5. But to give you some context... Uh, there's five other chapters beforehand, and uh, thankfully this year I decided a while ago I wanted to go through the book of Galatians with our students, and we are in chapter five. So I'm going to give you a brief context so you can under understand the tone of Paul's letter and why he gets to this point in his letter. So the central issue in the book of Galatians is the significance of the cross of Christ. The resurrection is barely mentioned. It's referenced in the beginning, and the cross is mentioned so many times. Because Galatians is about the means of justification. How does it happen? How does it happen? How are we justified? Well, it's not by works of the law. Because no one can be justified by works of the law, is his argument, but by faith alone in Christ. Martin Luther, when he wrote in his preface to his own commentary, and talking about uh, the central role of justification by faith alone, this is what he wrote. 
This doctrine can never be discussed and taught enough. If it is lost and perishes, the whole knowledge of truth, life, and salvation is lost and perishes at the same time. But if it flourishes, everything good flourishes. Religion, true worship, the glory of God, and the right knowledge of all things and of all social conditions. There is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works and of human traditions. It is very necessary, therefore, that this doctrine of faith be continually read and heard in public. So in the beginning of Galatians, Paul talks about how a false gospel was introduced. He even says it's not really even a gospel. You can't call it, it's not good news. It's a different gospel, but it's no gospel at all. And he said, if they, you were to believe this, you are anathema is the word. You are accursed. It's the harshest word for judgment that could be used towards someone for veering off from the gospel. Paul makes this argument against these false teachers, and he does so with great authority because he recognizes and states that this authority, this gospel that he received, didn't come from man nor through man, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He was taught by the Lord, and we see God at work there, and in the first two chapters, he chronicles that work that God did in his life, and all the while, in those two chapters, chronicling these stories, he subtly tears down the false gospel through the narrative of his testimony. And then in chapter three, he switches gears. He then comes directly at their arguments, and he makes his own. Paul, what he's been doing in that chapter, has been making an argument for his gospel from experience and scripture. In 3, 1 to 5, he brought up their own experience with salvation, like, how were you saved, Galatians? Were you saved by works of the flesh or by hearing with faith? Which was it? And he's asking these rhetorical questions. They know the answer, but he's trying to show them the folly of their approach. They had been bewitched, as he said. And then he goes on and continues to make his argument for his gospel from the scriptures, quoting many passages from the Old Testament, because these Judaizers, these false teachers, love the Old Testament, of course, but they twist it. They twist it for their own ends and their false gospel. So he says, well, let me go back to those scriptures and show you how they're wrong. And then in the rest of chapter 3, going through verse, chapter 4, verse 11, he makes his whole argument from salvation history. He talks about Abraham, because Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice it didn't say Abraham was circumcised and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed, he had faith. And that's Paul's argument, that it's always been the same, Old Testament to new. Then, the section of the book we find ourselves in, starting in chapter four, verse 12, but moving forward, he begins directly addressing them with specific commands, with things to do. And as you're reading the Bible, just a tip on reading the Bible, often, as you read the epistles, you'll see that the beginning of the book often has a lot of theology and doctrine, abstract thought, but then it goes right into application in the second half of the book. Good examples, Ephesians chapter one, verse three, doctrine, Ephesians four through six, it's practical living in light of that doctrine, which is also still more doctrine. But it's very helpful, and that's what Paul's seeking to do. He's trying to show them, you need to choose a side. Are you gonna walk in the spirit or the flesh? Are you gonna display the fruit of the spirit? What, What are you going to do? And then he goes to this text in particular. Look down at your Bibles at Galatians 6, one to five. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, 
lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You see, what I believe the main idea of this passage is, is that Paul, Paul wants the Galatians to see their responsibility to love one another by walking in humility to restore one another. Paul wants the Galatians to see their responsibility to love one another by walking in humility to restore one another. You see, this text teaches clearly that no one is exempt from this list. Notice it doesn't say, if children are caught in any transgression. If that church member you don't like is caught up in any transgression. If your pastor is caught in any transgression. He's not saying those things. If anyone, because guess what? Everyone is a sinner. Surprise, surprise, right? We all sin. We all sin. And so we can all be caught in a transgression. Paul knew that anybody among, especially among the brothers, could be caught in transgression because he has a right doctrine of sin. Recall earlier in the book of Galatians, what do we see happen? An apostle is confronted. Peter, the apostle, was eating with Gentiles. And eating in that day together signified oneness and fellowship and unity. And what does Peter do? The Judaizers show up. And you know what he does? He separates himself from them. He says, by that action as an apostle, he says, we are not in fellowship by that action. And you know what he communicates? You're not one of us. And you know why? Because they had not been circumcised. So he communicated the means of fellowship, the means of unity, the means of being in the body of Christ was by works of the law and not by hearing with faith. He sinned greatly. And you know what Paul did? Publicly called him on it in that moment and corrected him. You see, Peter had been caught in a transgression. And you know what Paul did? He restored him. He sought to restore him. He sought to build him up. Sometimes, as we say, like the truth hurts, right? He told him the truth. And thankfully, Peter repented. So Peter had been caught in that transgression. Now, let's make sure we look at the text clearly to grasp what he was saying here. One thing that's really important is we don't want to necessarily become nitpicking Nancys about every little thing because you've got to notice the verb here. The verb, but if anyone is caught in any transgression. You see, to, to be caught according to the original meaning of this word, it carries down this idea, this word picture of being run down by a boar, a wild boar. Okay? It carries that picture. And some of your translations might even say, if, you, if anyone is overtaken in any transgression. So this doesn't have to do with uh, any kind of uh, uncommon, non-recurring sin that someone might commit. For example, if you know that someone's character is to generally be very patient, like extremely long-suffering, you're like, that's the most patient person I know in the entire world. Then one day, you're in the car with them, and you get in traffic, and someone cuts them off, and they get upset, and they, they say something at them, right? They, even though, you know, we all know they can't hear us, but we say something anyway, right? And they show impatience. You might respond by just overlooking it, not saying anything. Well, that was a moment of weakness, moment of flesh, whatever. But let's just say you ride with them every day, and all of a sudden you start seeing this pattern growing. 
Next thing you know, they're caught in the transgression of constantly complaining and sinning no matter what little thing someone might do in traffic to bother them. Oh, that might be something there that's worth saying, hey brother, hey sister, you need to work on that. You know, maybe, maybe just let it go. <laughs> it's okay, you know, <laughs> help them let it go. You see, that would be something more like being caught in a transgression. So that's restoring, and that's great. The text continues describing this. Look at, look at verse one. He says, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, who are the spiritual? It kind of sounds like an elite group, group of Christians right away, right? You know, maybe you sit there and you say, well, they're, they're just real spiritual people. They're just real spiritual people. Well, guess what? Um, everyone who is a Christian is filled with the spirit or has the spirit of God. They've been sealed with the spirit. So that makes you spiritual. You are spiritual in the sight of God in the sense of being in Christ, being his child. And so as we, as we see this and as we think about it, um, those who are spiritual, as this text is conveying, they have the responsibility, as we saw in chapter five, to bear the fruit of the spirit, and now in chapter six here, to seek to restore a fallen brother or sister. And notice why uh, to gently restore. Notice how in 6.1, it's modified by 5.26, right there in the verse right before. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So someone restoring someone is not doing it for selfish reasons. They're not uh, doing it to provoke them or envy them, but to restore them gently. To restore them gently, as, as one commentator says about this verse, those who envy others find joy in the sins of others since the faults of others are on full display and they look better by comparison. But one who truly loves others and is walking in the spirit approaches them with firmness since they have sinned that's mingled with humility. So they are treated gently. So we've examined this verse pretty closely minus one word. And I want to look at this word to restore, to restore. Uh, In Ezra, this, this, this word is used of rebuilding the walls in the Greek Old Testament text, the Septuagint. Uh, in the New Testament, when the disciples are mending their nets with their father, that's the same word, to mend, to restore, to build up. It literally means to, to cause to be in a condition to function well. You see, when we're in sin, we don't function well. When, when we sin, we, we're caught in a transgression, we're not functioning as spiritual people. We're not following Christ as we should. Things need to be put back in order. We need to be restored, built up, mended. And so our goal should be to build up and take someone to a place of order in their lives. We want them to function well. We want them to honor and glorify the Lord. We want them to serve the Lord. And serving them in this way helps them to do that. But notice the warning in this text. Keep watch on yourselves. In other words, take notice of yourself, inspect yourself closely. Why? Lest you too be tempted. Those who seek to restore others are acting in humility and must be cautioned that walking in humility is not easy and could easily lead to being tempted to fail. As one commentator said, today they are reinstating one who has sinned, but tomorrow they may need to be reinstated. It can happen that quickly. You see, if we take the necessary caution when approaching any situation regarding the sins of others, and we keep a close watch on ourselves, then we won't need to be the one reinstated tomorrow. We have to walk in humility. This warning is very fitting for the believer, and the commands that follow serve to encourage this spiritual attitude. Look at verse 2. 
He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, this means to come alongside them and, and carry the burden to help them. Have you ever seen someone maybe coming through a door and they're trying to maybe load something into their vehicle and you say, hey, can I help you with that? They have a burden, you're helping them with that. Or you might say, hey, I can see you're having some difficulty with that. Would you like me to get some more help? Can I get some help for you? We're bearing that burden physically. But in an obvious way, we can, we can come alongside them and help them bear that physical burden there, right? But we should also seek to do that spiritually. What about spiritual burdens? Our own wrestling with sin. For example, maybe some of you older women in this church, do you see some younger women in this church who maybe need some maturing? And they're sweet young ladies, but you see some of the sins that you committed when you were younger in their lives today. What if, what if those young women you see would benefit if you came alongside her and built her up? Maybe sought to restore her or mend her nets, as the text says, to bear one another's burdens. Well, you might think to yourself, well, I have enough burdens to bear right now. I possibly couldn't help her. Or maybe I don't know enough of the Bible. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Well... That might be true that you're bearing a lot. It might be true you don't know enough of your Bible. Maybe that should be a a trigger in your mind to say, I need to read more of my Bible and study my Bible more so I can help others, so I can bear other people's burdens spiritually. You see, if you were to humble yourself and to help others and and be a part of God's plan for their life, for their sanctification, in order, you never know what kind of blessing you could be. And so the moment you do that, it's easy for us to be critical from afar when we see someone in sin. It's even harder to come alongside them and say, hey, let me help you carry that. We should seek to carry each other by lovingly being firm about each other's sin and seeking to build them up. And doing, as the text says, what? Fulfilling the law of Christ. Fulfilling the law of Christ. This essentially means that Christ's life and death is our way of viewing the world. That's what that means. His life and death, his resurrection, it's the foundation, the philosophy, the method, the program for all we do in life. Because it's based completely upon love. Bearing someone's burden is the most loving thing you can do. Most loving thing you can do. Look at verse three. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Maybe you're another Christian who doesn't think you should concern yourselves with the issues that others have. Maybe you've even thought to yourself, I don't want to help them. They're a lost cause, or they'll never change. Or look at so-and-so with that same old problem again. When we act like that, we're essentially letting someone remain in sin. We aren't seeking to restore them or gently correct them. And you know what verse 3 is saying? Essentially, you're thinking too highly of yourself. Have you ever considered that the reason you don't help people with their problems is because you are prideful? That could be the case. Maybe not, but we should examine ourselves as the text will tell us. Is it maybe because you're prideful, not because of some other random excuse? Think about this verse in context. We should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who is the kind of person that doesn't help? The self-deceived, prideful person who only loves themselves. I heard someone say once, The test of the love you have for those in your church is by asking yourself, how well do you love the person that bothers you the most? Now, if I start showing love to someone a lot today or soon, don't think I'm uh, 
annoyed by you, okay? I just wanted to say that. I don't think you're bothersome if I'm showing love to you, okay? But I think you get the point. How do we think of ourselves in comparison to others? Are we rightly loving people? Tom Schreiner says here in his commentary, those who do not help others in their struggles, who live lives of splendid isolation, are guilty of pride. They think they are something when they are nothing. Maybe this is the kind of person who thinks that they're immune to this temptation. They don't need to worry about devoting themselves to helping others. I don't struggle with this. I I can't help them. I don't want to help them. Well, to to some degree, this person is self-deceived here, and they need a faithful brother or sister to come and point that out and bear the burden of their pride with them. They are misled, and if not careful, will shipwreck their own life. Why? Well, look at verse 4 and 5. He says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Yes, we are responsible to and for others and their spiritual well-being. But we are also individually going to stand before God and be held accountable. Our work will be tested by God. Think of what 2 Corinthians 5.10 says. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, this judgment seat of Christ, this this is the Bema seat, it was a seat that was thought of in the ancient world as like an Olympic seat for a judge where he would hand out the awards for those who competed in the games. In the same way, that's the picture here, It's it's a seat of rewards. We will all appear. We, notice the text says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is necessary. It will happen as believers in Christ. And the whole purpose is that we might receive from God to receive what, what we are due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. How will the Lord lo- look at and assess your life on that day, at the judgment day? And just as a, as a quick aside, maybe you're an unbeliever in this room and you heard what I said about works and God judging our works. Yes, we as Christians, works are important, but we don't get the cart before the horse. What Galatians is all about is being saved by faith, not by works. But as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Now we go work, and we do the works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. We want to do that for God's glory and for our good and for that reward one day. So as Galatians is saying, we should make sure we examine ourselves, we should test our work, but maybe something in this verse didn't sit right with you. Notice where Paul says, and his reason to boast will be in himself alone. You might ask, boast in self, that sounds a bit prideful. Well, look closely at the beginning of four and five. Test your own work. We want to make sure it accords with what it actually is. Look at yourself fairly and rightly. That you're not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And then in verse five, hey, one day you're going to have to bear your own load. He's talking about the judgment day. This is an eschatological, this is an end times kind of picture here. It's the judgment seat. So the boasting is not something you're currently boasting in. It's rather in that day that you will boast in, in the future. The verb's in the future. So you will be able to boast in yourself alone and rightly. 
So we can come before God rightly saying with no deceit, Lord, on this final day, this is what I bring before you in my life. This is what I did for you. I, will, I, I, I bear this load. So we talked a lot about the why and the what here, but I also want to take some time to apply this text specifically. Like I said, this is a topical sermon, okay? A little topical, exegetical as well. And I want to talk about conflict in light of this text and see how it's sanctifying even until the final day, the day we stand before God. Now, what is conflict? Here's some helpful facts about conflict that I've heard recorded over the years. A lot of the things that I'm saying I've learned through my studies in biblical counseling from a few books and uh, conferences and class notes. Uh, so I won't be like, citing everything as it goes, but I want to say this. A couple book resources I'd recommend to you. Uh, Peacemaker, or The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict by Ken Sandy. Excellent book. Excellent book. Highly recommend to, to everyone. I mean, all read it. It's fantastic. And then this, this book right here by Jay Adams, from forgiven to forgiving. Excellent resource to add to your library. And this one's a shorter one. So maybe if you're like, I don't want to read the long one. Well, the short one. Pick up the short one. It's great. It's a great book. So a few things that I've learned over the years about conflict. Even as peacemakers, as sons and daughters of God, we will experience times of conflict. So peace is not the absence of conflict. Conflict is ultimately inevitable because we live in a Genesis 3 world. It's the curse is real. Something we also learn is that conflict is painful. It doesn't feel good. You can't avoid it. Conflict is destructive. It can have devastating effects on your life and the lives of others. But also conflict isn't always a bad thing. In other words, meaning that God can use it. I mean, think of the life of Joseph. What you brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. Conflict's not always ultimately a bad thing. Another example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 18 and 19, where he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he says, and then the divisions are bad, but then he says, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You know, one of the conversations I have often with unbelievers when I'm out at LSU with Rachel Christie, some Times you'll hear people say, well, there's so many denominations within Christianity. How do I know which one's the right one? Well, of course it's going to be factions and divisions. The Apostle Paul even talked about it. It's going to happen. But why? It's because of, it's because of doctrine. And I've heard people say so many times, oh, let's not talk about doctrine. Let's just talk about Jesus. But when you talk about Jesus, you're talking about doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. They, they complain. It can be so contentious and so divisive and they get to a point where they, where they say any focus on doctrine is a recipe for division, and division is bad, and is really the underlying assumption there. But it can actually be good and healthy. Because here's the truth, folks. The chief purpose of studying to have sound doctrine isn't to divide, it's to define. Why do I believe what I believe? And how do I now go and live it out? But when we define something, especially something such as our view of the world, it's inevitably going to divide with those who don't follow it. Even sometimes within the own uh, church that we're in, it can be that way where there may not be a a regenerate person and they push back. Well, that's going to happen. Also, we can see one sense in that conflict can be good in Psalm 119.71, where David says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Like I said, it's sanctifying We can learn through conflict. Also, there's a contrast between having differences and having conflict. So let's go ahead and define conflict. 
It's when one or both parties sin against one another in their communication and or their behavior and remain in opposition to one another. Let me say that again. When one or both parties sin against one another in their communication and or their behavior and remain in opposition to one another. Well, where does this come from? Where does conflict come from? Well, the text of scripture is our guide. It answers it for us in James chapter four, verse one to four. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? That's great, it's, it's asking the question we're asking. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We see really clearly in that text, it's our passions. It comes from our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. In Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, when he's talking about conflict, and one chapter in particular, really helpful layout, and I just wanted to give this to you, he shows this progression of idolatry, this way in which we slowly give in to these idols in the midst of conflict, from these desires we had that cause fighting and quarreling. It's through four things. He says, the first, we say, I desire. I desire. And desires aren't all bad. But where it goes is, it, is these desires can lead to bad things. You see, an idol is something we desire that might even be good, but it's become distorted because of our unmet desires. They're driving us. They're driving our perspective, our attitude, and not God himself and his word. Notice here what Ken Sandy says. If someone is standing in the way of a good desire, it is appropriate to talk together about it. As you talk, you may discover ways that both of you can grow and benefit each other. If you cannot make progress privately, it's reasonable to seek help from a pastor or a trusted advisor. But what if the other person persistently fails to satisfy your desire? If he's an employee, it may be appropriate to fire him. And if he's an employer, you may need to look for a new job. But if the other person is your spouse, a child, a longtime friend, or a member of your church. These relationships should not be easily forsaken. So when one of these people disappoints you, you will need to choose between two courses of action. You can trust God and seek your fulfillment in him. And in a way to summarize, you can patiently endure by faith, by praying fervently for that person, and allow this trial, this disappointment, this conflict to conform you to the image of Christ, privately until it's dealt with, but number two, you can go the other way, the way of the world. You can take the next idle progression towards being demanding. So you go from saying, I desire, to I demand. Maybe some of these are examples of desires you hear yourself say that he uses here. I work hard all week. Don't I deserve a little peace and quiet when I come home? I just want the children to get along and work hard in school. 
I spend hours managing our budget. A new computer would save me hours of work. God calls me to provide for our family. I deserve to have more appreciation and support for the long hours I put in. I just want to have the kind of intimacy God intended for marriage. She's my granddaughter. If I don't see her more, she'll think I don't love her. God has made me pastor of this church, so people should respect me. He's my pastor, so he should visit me faithfully in the hospital. I've worked harder than anyone else in this project. I deserve the promotion. Fill in the blank. There are an untold number of desires, unmet desires, that people have aired with an attitude of demanding. While some of these things might be completely valid, by the way, nevertheless, it's our response thinking we deserve it and need it that becomes the problem. Because by needing it, we're saying, I'm not fulfilled by what God has given me. Saying, I need this, I must have it. We're worshiping that thing. In other words, it goes from this is something I want to I must have it. I must have it. That's idolatry. And it's so dangerous for the Christian. Notice what Martin Luther says here, to whatever we look, for any good thing and for refuge in every need, this is what is meant by God, lowercase g, an idol. To have a God, lowercase g, is nothing else than to trust and believe in him from the heart. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. So on the next step from saying I desire to I demand, we say I judge. When, you, when we don't get what we demand from others, we begin to judge them. And when I'm saying we judge here, I'm not saying we never judge others. We're actually commanded in some parts of the Bible to judge, but to judge rightly. But here it's speaking of sinful judging. Listen to this gut-wrenching quote from David Paulison. We judge others, criticize, nitpick, nag, attack, condemn, because we literally play God. This is heinous. The Bible says there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. To destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you when you judge? None other than a God wannabe. In this we become like the devil himself. And it's no surprise that the, the devil is mentioned in James 3.15 and 4.7. We act exactly like the adversary. We seek to usurp God's throne and act as the accuser of the brethren. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms we establish. So to summarize this idea, when we judge others for not meeting our desires, in this sinful way, this idle progression, we are acting like Satan, we're imitating him. And often those who bear the brunt of it are those we're closest with. We respond to those we profess love to in anger and frustration. And it's hard. I know I've had to repent to my wife and boys more time than I can count. And graciously, they followed a biblical pattern of reconciliation to conflict and forgiven me when I wronged them. But if we don't humble ourselves, and, and if we don't continue, and sorry, and if we do continue down this idol of progression, this desiring, demanding, then judging, it will finally end, end at this fateful end of punishing. So we could say, I desire this, then I demand it, I'm going to judge you for it, now I'm going to punish you for it. Idols will always demand sacrifices, always. When we don't get what we want, we ultimately tend toward trying to inflict suffering upon them, whether it's emotionally or physically. We, we react in overt anger or hurtful words 
As Proverbs says that um, there's, there's a, a harsh word is like a sword thrust to the heart of a double-edged sword. But the words of the wise, what do they do? They bring healing. They bring healing. This root is the most destructive course and ultimately can ruin relationships and your own soul. So how should we think about it? Number one, I shouldn't trust my feelings. Don't start there. Don't start with how you feel about the situation. Often you have to take a, take a step back, take a deep breath and think, and go to God in prayer. The first thing you must do is you must trust in God by faith. Don't go to self-help books. Dive into the self-revealing book, the Bible, God's divine revelation. By going to his word, you and I can be shaped to think biblically about what we're going through, this conflict. So how do I solve it internally? The true worship of God. You must worship the Lord. We need to rightly love and love him. We need to rightly fear his holy name and reverence and respect him. And we need to step out by faith. We must trust what he has said and we must do it. How might you solve this conflict between yourself and the person you've offended? Well, thankfully, Jesus laid it out very clearly in his word. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. It says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if, and if he refused to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if you two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this is where we get this idea of church discipline, of correction. And as we think about it in light of our text, it's vitally important to seek to restore one another. So what should this resolution look like when it works? When it works, right? You go to your brother one-on-one and it works right away. That's great. Well, how should the one who's wrong, done wrong, how should they handle that confession? Well, Sandy gives seven A's of confession. Listen closely. Number one, you address everyone involved. If I sin from this platform publicly in front of all of you, I don't go to one person and say, I'm sorry and express sorrow. I stand here before all who were offended, all who I sinned in front of, and I address it. Address everyone involved. (laughs) Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. It's superficial because it implies that you don't know if you did something wrong. So you were to say, you know, um, I'm sorry if I offended you. You know, if essentially what you're saying is it's like a token apology. I'm sorry I did this to you, but you know, it's because you really upset at me. You're essentially blaming the other person or you're not listening enough to actually hear what they're going through. Avoid the ifs, the buts, and the maybes. Number three, admit specifically. The more detailed and specific you are, the more likely you will communicate your understanding of the wrongdoing and receive a positive response from the person you offended. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. The goal here is that you communicate that you understand how the other person felt as a result of your words or actions. Notice this whole thing didn't start at their feelings, right? We started three other things before that. But you have to acknowledge the hurt that was caused. Number five is to accept the consequences. Whether it's making restitution through repaying someone something you owe for wrongdoing, maybe you 
broke something or damaged something, or whether it's acknowledging to your employer, hey, you have every right to fire me because of this thing I did. Accept the consequences. Number six, alter your behavior. You need to demonstrate in your life by repentance that you are on a path of growth in this area. Uh, There needs to be behavioral changes, or at least demonstrate that you understand the new behaviors that you need to be putting on as you put on Christ every day, and you need to resolve to do it and communicate that. But lastly, you need to ask for forgiveness. Number seven, ask for forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not a feeling. I don't, you know, I don't feel like forgiving them. No, 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 forgiveness is not a feeling. Disassociated with that. Forgiveness is also not forgetting. It's not forgetting it. Forgive and forget is not biblical. You actually forgive in order to, by the grace of God, one day forget. Okay? And forgiveness is not excusing. You, you say, well, if I'm forgiving them, I'm excusing what they did. No, no, you're not. They've actually admitted to you what they've done wrong. And so you're not excusing it. You're, you're agreeing with them about their sin, agreeing with God about their sin, and you're not holding it against them anymore. It's a decision you make. But there's two aspects to forgiveness that are really important, and I want to name both of these. Number one is having an attitude of forgiveness. Okay, and every Christian should just have this because as Ephesians 4.32 says, we should be kind and tenderhearted toward one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. We should have this attitude. The attitude of forgiveness is unconditional because it's part of your commitment to God. We recognize, God, you've forgiven me of so much. We, we, we feel the weight of that every time we sin. Like, God, you've even, you knew I was gonna do this sin 2,000 years ago. You love me the same. You forgave me. So there's this attitude of forgiveness. We, we know the weight of that from our own experiences, and we always seek to view the offenses that, that have come our way with mercy. That's what we need to do. That's the attitude of forgiveness. But there's a second part of forgiveness that a lot of people misunderstand. Listen closely. We must have the attitude of forgiveness, but then there's the granting of forgiveness. And you know something? The granting of forgiveness, it's conditional. It's conditional. Some people might, this might be a shock to think that forgiveness is conditional, but that is likely maybe because we've been shaped more by the culture than the Bible. You see, forgiveness is conditional on the repentance of the offender and takes place between you and that person. And the best picture that we can see of this, both of these at work, is when Jesus died on the cross. He cried out to God in prayer in front of those who were crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them! for they know not what they do. On the spot, they weren't forgiven. It's not like God just let them off the hook right there. They were sinning. They crucified the Lord of glory. And Jesus' attitude was, was merciful toward them. Merciful. But if they were to die on the spot, they would have been in hell. They would not have been forgiven in that spot just because Jesus cried out that they might be forgiven. But you know, at Pentecost, the Father answers Jesus' prayer. He answers Jesus' prayer when Peter preaches this powerful sermon and puts their offense before their face. Look at Acts uh, 2, 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he, what does he do? He points the finger at them. He says, you crucified. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Then how do they respond? Look at the text, look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? They recognized their sin. And in that moment, conditional forgiveness was offered because they repented. They heard Peter's command to repent and to believe for the forgiveness of sins. It was for the forgiveness of sins. They were forgiven. God granted to him that that day, and 3,000 people trusted Christ. We see the attitude of forgiveness in Christ in his prayer and the granting of it and God granting it to those people. What a beautiful picture that we should always reflect on with gratitude. So we see in this text, what's my point in detailing forgiveness here? As a good friend of mine once said, you cannot be right with God and wrong with one another. And you cannot be wrong with God and right with one another. You see, if there's someone in this room that you are at odds with, you're, at, you're not in the right relationship, you need to go to that brother or sister. You need to make it right. You can't go day in and day out and not having dealt with the problem before you. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. We must properly reconcile to God and one another to work through our conflicts. And lastly, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in closing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21, he talks about this ministry that we have all been given. It's not a ministry just for the apostles. It's not a ministry just for pastors. It's not a, it's not a ministry just for those who you think are the most godly people in church. It's a ministry for every member of the body of Christ, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul wrote this to a church, and he pleaded with them, pleaded with them to live out that reconciliation, a church that was really messed up. Scholars say that 2 Corinthians is really like 4 Corinthians. There's two other letters that Paul references in both 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. We don't have them today. But he had to write this church a lot because churches are full of sinners saved by grace through faith. We're going to wrong each other. And the wrong response is just to get up and leave, to take your toys and leave the sandbox. We have to work through it. We have to love each other. And it's not always easy. It takes humility. And when pride's in the picture, we're not going to rightly love each other and minister to each other. And it's going to happen because we're sinners. We must handle ourselves rightly. Now, as I close in this sermon, I want to ask you guys, how do you think of yourself? Do you respond to this text? Okay, I need to do better. I need to do better. I need to do this. Or do you respond to this this sermon today and say, I need Christ? I hope it's the latter. Because 
Listen, we can't do this in the flesh. We can't love one another in the flesh. It really takes a miracle. It takes the spirit of God working in us. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us, works in us both to will and to work to his good pleasure. I hope the attitude that you, you leave away from this sermon today, you say, look, I, I want to be a, a person in the body of Christ who seeks to restore one another, to love each other, to bear one another's burdens, because I know I'll stand before God with my burden, my life, and say, God, this is what I did with what you gave me. Well, you must remember Jesus' words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. And we pray, God, that you would help us to respond rightly to your word this morning. Maybe this morning, some of us are in the midst of a conflict, or maybe we just came out of one. Maybe we didn't handle it the best we could have. I know I've been guilty of that. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would seek to do some reflection. To respond to this message saying, I need Christ. I need his word. I need his spirit. I need his grace to come in and to shape me, to conform me to the image of Christ. That his church might be built up, that the lost might be saved. That we might look more like you to a lost and dying world. Because we all remember the horror of not being in you, the horror of being lost. God, we thank you for the salvation you granted us in Christ. Help us to not carry it in vain. Help us to see the responsibility we have to love each other and to do so for your glory. Help us in the times we fail. Carry us. As you carried your people through the wilderness, God, we trust that you will carry us. You are good. You are faithful. And we look to you in your grace. If you're here this morning and there's unrepentant sin in your life. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go to God in confession. Like a good father, he will forgive you. And fellowship will be restored and then go to that brother or sister and make it right. If during this time of response, you desire prayer, I'll be standing down front. I'll be glad to greet you that you might faithfully um, follow Christ. I want to encourage you in prayer if that's something you need or you could turn to a neighbor next to you. If you're an unbeliever in this room this morning and you reflect on this forgiveness that we can have, I'd be happy to receive you and talk with you about how you can know Christ and walk rightly with him. Or maybe you desire to become a member of this church. We'd be delighted to receive you down front and to begin that process of church membership. Lord, as we respond to you, help us to live and act in a way that's pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.